I'm Steve Ray. Just want to say welcome, and uh, I'm hoping there are a bunch of people on the phone. We're going to do some introductions in just a little bit here, so that the phone, the invisible phone people, will be able to make themselves known as well. But I want to thank you all for coming. And I was thinking to myself this morning that you have to be careful what you wish for, because uh, last week I was wishing it was getting a little warmer here, <clears throat> and it looks like we're really going to get what we wish for. And as you may not notice, or if you didn't see my email on Friday, this whole block of rooms here uh, is without any ventilation or air conditioning. So we will see how that goes and uh, see what kind of contingencies we may need to resort to if it really starts toasting up here by noon or afternoon. That's a westward-facing window just outside this room, so we'll see what the afternoon sun has to do. Anyway, um, <clears throat> despite worrying about uh, getting what you wish for, I do wish that we are going to be successful, obviously, the next two days. And uh, we've, I've, everywhere here and, and on the phone, I'm sure, is aware of the exciting discussions we've been having over the uh, email for a couple of months now. Um, and I think the challenge probably for all of us is going to be able to keep our conversations focused toward a concrete uh, objective by, the, by noon tomorrow, really. And then uh, in the afternoon of tomorrow, we're going to be sort of presenting to the world the fruits of our labors. So um, I imagine you're all aware we have uh, three sessions. We have a framework discussion session uh, this morning led by Leo Oberst and uh, Michael Gruninger. And then in the uh, afternoon, we're going to have the uh, population session. And I, now I'm trying to remember who's doing each one now. Let's see. Framework session is that. Thank you, Peter. <coughs> there we go. The population session. Tom Gruber, that's right, is going to be uh, leading that. Is Tom here? I, didn't, I don't even recognize. Oh, there you are. Okay. All I saw was your picture on the web. You had longer hair on the web. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and then in the uh, morning of Tuesday, we actually have a, a bifurcated session. We have an early 8 till 9 a.m. session uh, to start working or start discussing and reaching closure on the communique. At 9 o'clock, we have interoperability week plenary session, because this is one of five conferences actually going on simultaneously here. Um, so from 9 until 10.30, we have a number of invited speakers, uh, rather uh, interesting people, I think, from places like Microsoft and all who have a fair amount of influence, these individuals. And then at 10.30, we will reconvene here for wrapping up the communique session, the communique preparation session. And then in the afternoon of Tuesday, we're going to have a kind of a presentation to the world where we will introduce the communique. Oh, I'm sorry. And the communique is being led. Who's leading the communique? Uh, Olivier. Olivier, that's right. Okay. And Frank Olkin, that's right. So uh, in the afternoon of Tuesday, we will have each of the aforementioned uh, session leaders present. We're going to start off with the presentation of the communique and then go in a little more detail as to the, the, the communique will kind of, at least we hope, sort of say, introduce to the world who we are, what it is we're all about here, what we're trying to achieve, then introduce 
the framework, the idea of the framework. Then we'll go into a little more details, present the framework, present the example population of that framework with things that people might know about, you know, well-known ontologies or folksonomies or whatever, and then have um, Tom Gruber's going to actually sort of wrap it up with a sort of a, well, we'll have a variety of perspectives then from different communi communities, the formalists, the folksonomists, the taxonomists, etc. And then uh, wrap that up. Uh, Tom's going to finish that up for us, and I'll probably just say a few words at the very end. So that's kind of the landscape of how it's all supposed to fit together. We're hoping that this is going to be a useful contribution to the world at large as far as being able to then have uh, sort of um, meaningful discussions where different data structures or ontologies or whatever are being compared. We'll have some means by which we can actually compare them and say, well, you know, this is slightly different along that axis or that dimension or whatever. So... That's kind of what we're striving for here. So uh, <clears throat> why don't we do this real quickly? Just um, go around the room. I think that's next on the agenda, right, Peter? Just uh, quick introductions of who we are, where we're coming from. We don't want to chew up a lot of time on that, but it would be help, I think, for us all to know one another. And uh, I won't forget you guys on the phone, um, but I think I'll start in the physical room here, and then we'll go around the room, and then we'll do the virtual people. Uh, so why don't you... So, oh, yes, I'm, thank you for pointing that out to me. We've got to discipline ourselves here. This is all being recorded through a central office down the hall, including the telephone calls, but it means we do have to discipline ourselves to push the button on the mic whenever you're talking. That enables not only that you're going to get recorded, but also the people on the co uh, conference call can hear you. Otherwise, you'll just be a distant voice of someone else's mic. It is possible to have more than one of these mics on at a time, but obviously we want to sort of keep things under control a little bit. So the telephone voices will come out of the speaker in the middle of the room. We've tested it. It seems to be loud enough. I think we'll be able to hear that okay. So, okay. So let's see if we can get this mic button discipline down. Take it away. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are. Uh, my name is Arturo Sanchez. I come from the University of North Florida School of Computing. Hello, my name is Catherine Goodyear. I'm from NCI, and I come from about five miles down the road. My name is Jack Teller. I'm also from NCI, and I come from uh, somewhere east of here in Montgomery County. My name is Angela Morgan. I'm from IIT. We're located in Herndon, Virginia. Uh, I'm Alan Bond. I uh, work at UCLA in the... Uh, Institute for Neuroscience, and I'm also a visiting professor at uh, NIST. I'm Kathy Lesh, a nurse, uh, which is unusual, working at uh, MITRE. I've um, been doing the terminology thing for a while, so looking forward to this. My name is Deborah McGinnis. I'm the acting director of the Knowledge Systems Lab at Stanford University. And I'm Tom Gruber. I'm from California, and I... Uh, I'm currently doing nothing for a living. I am running some public service uh, work for the Semantic Web. Uh, Michael Gruninger, University of Toronto. I uh, worked at NIST for uh, many years on the process specification language. I'm Peter Denno, also from NIST, and I work in the Manufacturing Systems Integration Division. Olivier Bodenreider, National Library of Medicine. Thomas Vanderwell, InfoCloud Solutions uh, from Bethesda, interested in folksonomies. 
Denise Bedford from the World Bank, Georgetown University, University of Tennessee, and Kent State. Can we have maybe the folks sitting in the back back wall there sort of step forward? You've got to use one of the mics. Uh, here. Hello. Uh, my name is Huil Han. I'm from Drexel University in Philadelphia. Beverly Jamison, American Psychological Association. Todd Schneider from Raytheon. I guess I'm the only one here, so I'm also representing the Network-Centric Operations Industry Consortium. Uh, Herb Basick, Lockheed Martin. Bob Smith, Tall Tree Labs, and a resident emergency awareness. Ken Batslavsky, Northeastern University. Uh, Chuck Ternitza from Old Dominion University, where I work at the uh, Virginia Modeling Analysis and Simulation Center. And Pat Cassidy, ontologist at MITRE. Jim Disro, I'm uh, doing a pilot project with the Department of Energy for the Federal Council of uh, Chief Information Officers. Susan Turnbull, General Services Administration. On behalf of uh, communities that expect to benefit from your efforts, we'd like to thank you in advance for your fine work. Peter Brown, I'm founder of a small technology company based in Vienna, Austria, and here on behalf of the e-government uh, focus group of SEN, the European Standards Agency. Doug Holmes, also from California, Java Professionals. Uh, Leo Obersmeider, uh, McLean, Virginia. Secondly, I'm uh, from uh, School, of Mechanical, School of Mechanical Engineering, Purdue University. I'm uh, working on the engineer ontology and uh, engineer knowledge reuse. Peter Yim, uh, Ontolog Forum and CIM3. And that's our systems person here keeping things going, but uh, <laughs> probably won't be participating in the conference. <coughs> uh, Andrew Mundy, I shouldn't uh, neglect to mention his name, though. Um, on the telephone, this will be a little chaotic, but who do we have... Uh, just try and chime in, and we'll try and see if we can sequence you. Uh-oh. Werner Kusters. Oh, Werner Kusters, yes. Welcome, yes. Werner. I'm from the Ontology uh, Research Group of the Center of Excellence in Bioinformatics and Life Sciences in Buffalo. Okay, anyone else on the phone? Hello. Who is that? Um, this is Deborah McPherson with WPG Architecture and Accuracy and Aesthetics. Are we able to, is everyone able to hear okay on the speaker? I can have them crank it up just a little bit. We're supposed to do that essentially. I'll get that done. Um, anyone else on the phone? Uh, this is Paul Cook uh, with ETA. I'm affiliated with the Council for Regulatory Environmental Modeling. Could you repeat yourself slightly louder, please? Uh, this is Paul Cook with the EPA. Thanks, Paul. And I'm affiliated with the Council for Regulatory Environmental Modeling. Thank you. Anyone else on the phone? If not, no, you're breaking up. Uh, it's completely unintelligible. Uh, but anyone else on the phone? If not, maybe we'll pass the baton to uh, Leo Oberst, 
who's one of the co-chairs of this session, along with Michael Gruninger. So, Leo? I can stay here. Welcome to everyone. Uh, this is the framework session. Uh, we've had a schedule change, and I just want to draw your attention to it. Uh, initially, I gave everyone uh, 10 minutes plus 5 minutes for discussion. We're going to try to group all that discussion at the end to give us a little more time because I think some of the issues that we want to uh, discuss here are a little bit contentious. Uh, so what we're going to do is basically have uh, uh, Michael Gruninger uh, give our initial, uh, uh, our initial uh, dimensional analysis, if you will, uh, uh, for the framework uh, and a number of brief, a number of slides. Uh, then we want to open it up to uh, in individual speakers, giving their uh, specific uh, positions. Uh, followed at the end by a general discussion, uh, and our hope is that um, what we what we're trying to do here is to develop a, an inclusive uh, framework. We're really not focused on a definition per se. We want to make sure that we can distinguish uh, dimensions. Uh, in this ontology space uh, so that we ultimately create kind of like a typing, uh, at least a coordinate system in this space. Um, we're really interested in having multiple communities map their artifacts into this uh, resulting ontology space. And so we, we have a tentative proposal out there, a tentative framework, uh, which Mike will talk about. We want to have the, uh, the position papers discussion but we want to actually uh, arrive at some resolution, too. So I'm hopeful that uh, uh, we can uh, achieve that in this morning's session and then uh, maybe move it forward uh, to the subsequent sessions. Okay, thank you. Uh, Michael? Can I just jump in here for a sec? This is Steve. Um, I was just checking with our conference facilities people, and the Skype callers, whoever's calling in on Skype is – not getting recorded well at all. My only thought is you might want to just try dialing back in again if you're coming in by Skype, and that might help. But uh, other than that, everything's looking good. Thanks. But are, are we going to be pulling up the slides? How's, that, how's the choreography going to work? All right, which slides? The first slides, I guess. Well, we, we arrive at this summit uh, from many different backgrounds, uh, and in some ways, our field is a our field of work is kind of a unique synthesis of computer science, philosophy, mathematical logic, uh, and I think that is one of our strengths. Uh, it certainly generates a lot of discussion. As I don't know if people have been tracking the hundreds and hundreds of emails over the past few days. Um, I think I should just go to the next slide here. Um, okay, I'll just stop here for a second. Um, and because we come from different backgrounds, we often have different kinds of motivations, different reasons why we're here. Um, the kind of background that I come from, my primary motivation had been to support kind of shareability and reusability of knowledge. And so a lot of the comments I made kind of come or generated from that particular kind of motivation. Um, and, to, to, and I guess because we're here for interoperability, because that's kind of like one of the other motivations that, that motivates me. 
Um, but I think that's something that will come out in the discussions. Uh, each of us will kind of be answering the questions that we pose, uh, you know, based on, on you know, why, what is the motivation for your kind of work. Um, I think one of the other things is that we don't just, use, we don't just build ontologies. Um, so there are a lot of people work on ontologies, build ontologies, but we don't just build ontologies. I think we're also here because we use ontologies. And uh, that's something else that um, also should be in the, in the air here when we're having all, all of our different discussions. There will be a lot of distinctions that people will raise. Uh, and some of these distinctions, maybe if you want to be ruthlessly pragmatic, if these different distinctions really don't impact on, on, on how we use ontologies or how we design ontologies, then we may you know, kind of recognize these, but also kind of place them aside as being not necessarily central to, to our objectives. Um, so just a few kind of editorial comments there uh, to start with. Uh, as, as Leo also mentioned, um, we're not here necessarily to come wordsmith a definition. Um, what we want to be able to do is identify commonalities, characteristics of ontologies that we all share in the ontologies that we build and the ontologies that we use, uh, but also to uh, articulate different distinctions uh, between the different ontologies uh, that we build, the different approaches to ontologies that we take. Uh, and so that's another thing that we're going to be doing uh, throughout, at least today, possibly tomorrow, is tracking the, the commonalities, tracking the distinctions that we make uh, without necessarily trying to trump each other on, you know, which is the appropriate differences. We're really recognizing, capturing these and synthesizing these. This is the communique is really going to be a synthesis of all the work that we are, all the discussions that we're having uh, today. So we just go to the next slide. Um, so I think I mainly said a lot of what was on this kind of slide. I, I think one of the other things that, uh, you know, again, I kind of wanted to emphasize is um, because we come from all these different backgrounds, one of the dangers has been that uh, if we begin to, to use uh, di uh, different approaches to ontology that are so different that we can, we can no longer share each other's work, that we can no longer reuse earlier work, if we can no longer have interoperability, then we'll be, we'll be lost. And I think one of the purposes of this summit is to kind of ensure that we have enough commonalities that we can maintain shareability and reusability. Uh, one of my slogans was diversity without divergence. Um, we can have a lot of different approaches to ontologies. It's a good thing to have different approaches to ontologies. Um, but we want to kind of maintain shareable without getting so different that we diverge. Next slide. So just as, you know, what do we have in common? What do we all share? Um, I think one of the things uh, or one of the aspects that we do share is uh, in all the approaches we have, there is some kind of vocabulary. I'm not going to use the word term or concept or I might get flamed, but um, we have a, a vocabulary. And together with that vocabulary, we have some way of specifying what these terms mean. Okay, now, one of the things, and, and when we say we have this specification of meaning, what are we talking about here? I mean, we're identifying the fundamental, I'm not supposed to use the word category, fundamental kinds of things in our particular domain. Uh, we identify the different ways in which these things are related to each other, different kinds of relationships. Uh, and so if I can be so bold as to say, you know, this is kind of, almost seems to be the, the kinds of characteristics that we do um, all share. Uh, 
if we go to the next slide, uh, if that's what we all share, then all the different approaches that we have start then identifying different distinctions. So one of the primary things here is, well, the nature of this specification of meaning, right? How do we do that? And this is where the notion, uh, Leo's notion of dimensions uh, really arose from. Uh, and we kind of identified two different kinds of, of dimensions, semantic dimensions, which were constraining how the approach specifies the meanings of the different terms in the vocabulary. Oop, terms, not use the word term. Um, symbol, symbols in the, uh, in the uh, vocabulary. Uh, but also pragmatic dimensions that cover the context in which the ontology is designed and used. And again, I think that's kind of one of the things that really um, distinguishes us as a, as a community is in the use of ontologies. Uh, these aren't just artifacts that are nice sit up on a shelf or sit out on a web page. These are meant to be used in, in many different ways. And in a way, a lot of the differences that arise from people's approach to ontologies is really grounded in some of these pragmatic kinds of, of, of approaches. Um, next slide. So one of the, I'm just going to kind of briefly go through these, and, and Leo, if, when I, if I mangle something or, or leave something out, just jump right in here. Um, one of the dimensions uh, is kind of this notion of a degree of formality or structure. Uh, as Peter Yim has said um, uh, many times, in this community, we not only want to support the kind of the logicians, the, the mathematicians' approach to uh, semantics, but we want to encompass all the different approaches uh, from in, very informal um, characterizations all the way to the very formal characterizations of, of different logics. Uh, and so in, in some ways, this uh, characterizes the, the semantic spectrum that Deborah McGinnis will be uh, uh, discussing in a lot more detail. So I'm not going to necessarily, I'm not going to really go through all uh, this because this is really the dimension that's covered by that semantic spectrum. Um, next slide, please. Uh, one of the, oh, and I guess this is also the other uh, aspect of the semantic spectrum, which is the notion of expressiveness. You know, what can you say in a given approach with a given degree of formality and structure? Uh, what are the kinds of constraints, the kinds of relationships that you can express within that approach. Uh, as you become more formal in, in different approaches, the notion of expressiveness takes on a much more technical um, precision. Um, but this is still something that uh, uh, you know, can be used to characterize other kinds uh, of approaches. Um, now, again, many, many kinds of approaches to ontologies uh, can't be expressed formally um, in, in terms of, of, of an underlying logic. And so in that case, expressiveness also takes on a more informal kind of evaluation. But I think uh, Deborah is going to be getting to this in more detail as well. Uh, next slide, please. Um, another uh, kind of dimension that can, we can use to distinguish between different approaches uh, is what we are calling representational granularity. Um, right, that what we want to, to what level of detail do you use when defining a particular term or concept? I'm going to really, I'm just going to use term and concept. You can attack me later. Um, right, so what is that level of, of, of granularity? Um, you know, do you use uh, very formal axioms in defining those things? Uh, or do you, you can use very, very precise scientific English in, in identifying some of these. Uh, Leo, did you want to address any point here? 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's there, there's actually some wiggle room in some of these dimensions. So granularity, again, uh, what do people mean by that? We'll point to some other things uh, eventually that maybe uh, tease out portions of what we mean by granularity. But, uh, again, we can have a very uh, complex formal language, let's say common logic or something, but have an ontology that's expressed in that, which is very simple. Uh, and at the same time, we could have, uh, let's say, an informal uh, uh, ontology expressed in English, which is, uh, goes on for hundreds of pages and is extremely precise. Uh, attempt has been made to make it uh, unambiguous and uh, creates many, uh, has created many uh, relations, many entities, many attributes, properties, etc., uh, within that uh, characterization. Uh, in in formal or structured uh, ontology, so w with respect to uh, uh, some sort of knowledge representation language or framework, um, and possibly even for uh, informal ontologies, you can also express or try to uh, express granularity in terms of uh, maybe some metrics. So the last bullet here uh, suggests uh, potentially some metrics you could use. Uh, again, it depends on your framework and or your language, but you, may, you can imagine uh, notions of density and uh, quantity and uh, uh, connectedness, uh, number of axioms, etc. Okay, next slide, please. So that covers kind of what we were calling the, the semantic dimensions, but then there's also a set of what we're calling pragmatic direction, uh, dimensions uh, that were aimed at the context uh, in which either the ontologies were designed or used. And, of course, one of the essential kinds of pragmatic dimensions is the intended use or application focus um, of the ontology. And we have several of them uh, kind of listed up here. Uh, I mean, effectively, you know, we have applications related to interoperability, we have applications related to uh, helping, uh, say, search a lot of the semantic web kinds of applications. There are applications that are related to the design of uh, computer artifacts, uh, the, the idea of having a conceptualization that, that drives the, the development um, of the software. Uh, because, you know, again, it, it seems like in, in all the approaches that we have uh, to ontologies, there is some kind of application that is in the mind of the designer and that is used as a way of evaluating the different kinds of ontological commitments uh, that need to be made. And so I think in all the approaches we have, we, you know, there, there is this application in the background. Uh, it's a motivation for why the ontology is being developed. It's also the, uh, the way in which you evaluate the ontology that you're building. Uh, your ontology will be good enough to support your application. Uh, we're not getting into quality kinds of concerns here, but this is, I'm just identifying this as one of the, uh, the, the ways in which the, this particular pragmatic dimension um, is used to kind of say, well, here's why this approach to ontology is different than this other approach, because uh, for its intended application, this was the degree of formality that was needed. This is the, the representational granularity that was needed. This was the particular kind of language that was needed in order to design that ontology and deploy it. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, another kind of dimension is uh, the role of automated reasoning, right? I mean, again, because a lot of the ontologies that we are building are being deployed uh, in an environment like the semantic web, 
um, there is some degree of automatic computer processing that is being done with these ontologies. And if you can think of these ontologies, the specification and the meaning of these terms as being captured in some formal language, then there's some kind of automated reasoning that's often being done, uh, again, depending on the nature of that kind of the, of the ontology. Um, and again, as, as, as uh, Leo was saying earlier with the representational granularity, you can have some very elaborate ontologies, um, but they might not be used for automated reasoning. They might be used as very sophisticated documentation um, that uh, is, is kind of then used by, say, designers of, of software systems. Um, a lot of the work that Nicola Guarino and Chris Welty have done with modal logic analysis of, of ontologies is not necessarily intended to be used as autom for automated reasoning. Very sophisticated logic, but it's being used as a way of evaluating other approaches to ontology. So it's not necessarily the, the, the idea that the, a, a very formal ontology is the only one that's being used for reasoning. Uh, there are a lot of approaches that take uh, WordNet and do some kinds of reasoning with those uh, to be able to, to assist in informa information retrieval. That can be considered as a, as a simple form of automated reasoning. Uh, next slide, please. Um, right, so you can have uh, simple kinds of automated reasoning that that's kind of focuses on, on one particular kind of relation, a subclass relation or a different kinds of uh, thesauri uh, relations. Um, you can get into more complex reasoning uh, as exemplified by many uh, description logic, semantic web um, ontologies uh, written in languages like RDF and OWL. Uh, and finally, you can get to very uh, complex automated reasoning uh, where you actually have automated theorem provers um, that actually are doing non-trivial kinds of inference more than just uh, classification and actually reasoning about these relationships. Uh, next slide, please. Um, the next uh, dimension is more the descriptive, prescriptive one. And Leo, maybe you could speak to this one a little bit better. There's always some um, controversy about this because n nobody wants to be pres prescriptive. So we have a couple other terms within that. Uh, what, it, what it tends to be is uh, uh, disc descriptive is maybe tolerating uh, kind of a looser notion of uh, how we characterize and what we characterize in our um, ontology. Uh, it may mean that, in fact, um, you, you're, you're wedded to uh, describing mostly things in the world, but on occasion uh, you use a construct that you know uh, is there's some argument against uh, existing in the actual world, but it's convenient uh, for your purpose, whatever your purpose is. Um, so it, it tolerates, uh, if you will, uh, uh, kind of a, m a multiplicative uh, view, meaning that uh, you, you create a concept, and again, we use that advisedly, uh, that seems uh, useful for you for whatever your purpose. Now, that's a versus a prescriptive, and and even uh, the alternative term, uh, kind of reductionist, is uh, again more pejorative than we want it to be. But uh, it may mean that uh, by prescriptive that you have uh, stringent requirements, if you will, for uh, what can go into an ontology from uh, an entity to a relation. They may uh, it, it may have to meet some uh, uh, qualification such as it has something to do about the real world uh, as opposed to some uh, maybe convenient cognitive notion or uh, something that's problematic. Uh, and often it's reductionist because uh, 
the 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 goal of the ontology might be to characterize uh, even for an engineering model the uh, real range of things and only those things that exist in uh, the real world. So in that sense, it's reductionistic, and uh, from that you can uh, prospectively build up uh, a, a larger apparatus uh, in your ontological space. Okay. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so the, the fourth and I think final uh, pragmatic dimension um, was the, the design methodology. Uh, addressing the question, well, how was this ontology uh, designed? Uh, and then from a course point of view, I mean, you can think of this as, as top-down or bottom-up. And the, the, the bottom-up approaches um, are, are, are maybe empirical kinds of methodologies. So the ones that are, are designed, uh, say, by community, on the fly, uh, you know, on the line, say, of, of folksonomies, um, where you have uh, a kind of a very dynamic and this is wide group of people Proposals are made, they're, they're modified, uh, and, uh, and as distinctions are not being used, they're winnowed out, and when confusions arise, distinctions are made, and, and the ontology evolves in that sort of dynamic, empirical way. Uh, and then again, just to be uh, kind of a, from a course point of view, I mean, there's also the, the top-down, uh, or I guess the rationalist uh, methodology, I didn't notice that one before, um, where uh, there's kind of a, a, a more formal methodology for like along the, analogous to software engineering, uh, where there's a, a, the idea of uh, identifying, uh, I guess what Mike Oshold and I used to call competency questions, uh, you know, identifying the scope of the ontology, um, the intended use, proposing various kinds of constraints in some logical language, and then evaluating uh, that artifact that you create um, as constrained against what the original uh, design requirements were. Um, and, and, and then there are probably a lot of other approaches that are in between these or combinations of these. I mean, it, it, you're not, you'll never find a top-down des uh, design ontology that has no empirical testing. And very often, um, the empirically uh, motivated design ontologies uh, feed into the requirements of a more top-down rationalist one. So, uh, you know, again, it's not necessarily the case that uh, there's only going to be two particular options here. Very often, they're going to be uh, combinations of them. But what we want to be able to do uh, with these distinctions is to say, well, if there are two different approaches to ontologies, is this one of the dimensions that they uh, differ on? Uh, is there another slide, or is that it? All right. Um, so, uh, so just kind of in conclusion, um, the, these notes that I presented, uh, you know, that kind of are the combination of Oh, so do you, do you have any other comments with this? Uh, it, kind of, you know, it represents, uh, you know, kind of a, some common notes uh, between Leo and Tom and Deborah and I. Um, you know, again, and this is meant to be a straw man, uh, something to attack. Um, hopefully not too hardly, uh, harshly. Um, but, you know, again, if, if there are certain aspects, so when I identified some common, you know, a common kind of, of uh, feature among these different approaches to ontologies, if people feel, well, no, actually there is, uh, their approach doesn't really match up with that, then, you know, that's great. That will feed into the discussion today. Um, but I would, I would ask people to, um, uh, you know, when there is some kind of disagreement, to say, well, here is an example uh, of an ontology either that I've used or that I've built, and it doesn't actually have that property that you mentioned. Uh, and then we can explore, well, 
are that is that difference really one of the dimensions uh, that we've identified? Um, conversely, if there is some kind of, of dimension that we have that we've missed here, uh, definitely that's something that we want to again articulate and and bring to the table. Um, oh, is there a final slide? Sorry, I jumped the gun. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm speaking to the slide without realizing that the text is there. Um, you know, and, and I think what we want to do, is we, we want to avoid wordsmithing um, debates. Um, now, again, by identifying commonalities and differences, you might say, well, that is really what you're doing when you're writing a definition. Um, but I, I think the, the emphasis is a little different. Again, and we're not necessarily interested in the... In the, in the, the, the 90 words or less definition of ontologies or, or two-sentence definition. Um, we are after these uh, dimensions. And uh, right, how are the different approaches alike? And how are they different but still comparable? And I think that's the reason why we have the dimensions. We can have differences, but we should at least be comparable. Uh, and be comparable in fairly precise ways so that you can determine whether or not another ontology can be used for a different application. Um, so again, let's uh, cooperate, find correspondences, figure out how we can work um, work together. Um, so I think uh, for the remainder of the morning sessions, we're going to be getting different perspectives from people, um, and hopefully we'll be able to kind of frame uh, the, the presentations uh, as kind of addressing the various points um, in this proposed framework. Um, so, Leo, if you had any other comments, I'll leave it up to next time. Uh, no, no, nothing else. Uh, we're, we're actually 10 minutes ahead, which is always good. <laughs> so, if, uh, if Werner is on the phone, I believe, Werner? And uh, maybe you're muted? I was just going to make one comment, sure. which is that uh, Peter is – am I on? I guess I'm on. Peter is um, running the VNC now, the remote screen, so if anyone's dialing in – they can follow along the slides with the VNC if you like. Or the wiki page has also just been updated so that all the slides for the various speakers are also available for download. Okay. okay. Uh, for people who, who need to speak when you're on the remote call, please press a star three to unmute yourself. Uh, otherwise, you're all muted. Uh, if Werner uh, is there, could, could you do a star three on your keypad and say something? Okay, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Loud and clear. Shall I start the presentation now? Uh, yes. We're, we're, uh, we're a few minutes early, but uh, uh, you can go ahead and get started, Werner. Okay, no problem. I'm just waiting now to see my slides appear. Werner, do you see your slides up? Well, I see that you are uh, trying to bring them up. I see the mouse movement. You just clicked on the slides uh, hyperlink, so I think they will appear. Yep, there they are. Okay, I uh, will present the approach that we are taking with respect to ontology here in Buffalo, and that's the strict uh, realist uh, approach. Can I have the next slide, please? So in a realist approach, we uh, departed from what I consider to be a reasonable assumption. Uh, that is that there are a couple things in reality which exist, and when we do ontology building, then have 
turn, we need to take these existing entities into account. And there are a couple of different sorts of entities. So we distinguish between particulars and universals. Particulars being entities such as me, the screen that you are looking at, the room in which you are, and so forth. And universals are more the generic things, such as uh, notions of person, room, computer screen, and so forth. A second distinguished, uh, second uh, uh, categories of entities that need to be distinguished are occurrence versus continuance. Occurrence are those kind of things what we uh, might call uh, processes and events, while continuance uh, are the things that undergo, undergo these uh, processes, such as uh, persons, tables, objects, and so forth. And then another distinction is between dependence and independent entities. And dependence need to be understood here as uh, ontological dependence, uh, which means, for instance, that the shape of my body cannot exist without my body. So my shape is dependent on my body, while not the other way around. Now, besides these entities, there are also relationships, and we acknowledge only relationships that hold between these different uh, entities, which are particulars or universal. So we have relationships that go from particular to universal, uh, most typical one being is instance of. Uh, we have relationships that go from particulars to particulars, such as part of. As an example, my nose is part of my head. And then we have uh, relationships from universals to universals, um, such as the e subtype of relationship, for example, person is subtype of mammal. Next slide, please. Um, we also recognize three levels of reality. The first one is that the world exists as it is prior to a cognitive agent's perception thereof. Next slide, please. So there is reality. Next slide. And there is also some structure which is there in advance. Next slide, please. The second level is that cognitive agents build up uh, what I would call in their mind cognitive representations of that world. Next slide. So you have their reality, and you have then some cognitive representation build up. Uh, next slide. And what you see already here is that some portions of reality escape the attention of the cognitive agent who is looking uh, at reality. There are things that point to the structures there, but there are structures in reality which are not pointed at. Next slide. And then the third level of reality is that one in which we make these cognitive representations publicly accessible in some enduring fashion. So uh, when we build ontologies, then we create representational artifacts that are fixed in some medium. Next slide. So you see that depicted here on the left-hand side, uh, where you see that out of uh, the two structures that were in the cognitive representation of an author, he decided to represent only one in his concretization. So in summary, we have a large structure in reality. Uh, only part of that structure uh, is being perceived uh, by the cognitive agent, and only Part of the structure in reality, what is perceived, is deemed to be valuable uh, to be put into a, an ontology. And that's here where that reductionist 
aspect that has been mentioned by Leo comes from Parsley. Next slide, please. So you should not make the mistake in thinking that in what I explained, that these concretizations of the third level of reality uh, are representations of these cognitive representations. That is not what we do at Buffalo. Next slide. So very concre concretely, uh, we do not consider ourselves to be in the business of concept representation. And I admire the fact that Michael and Leo already a couple of times said, okay, we use the word concept for the time being. We would never use it. We only would mention it. Next slide. So what we are doing is making representations of the corresponding parts of reality. So we need to go through our cognitive representations thereof, but there is a difference between going through cognitive representations or, being, or representing cognitive representations. Representing cognitive representations would mean that you are two steps away from reality, and we think that being one step away is already too much. So, in fact, uh, what we call ontologies should be like the images taken by means of a high-quality camera. Uh, if you take a picture of something, uh, what you see there is exactly as it is, can be seen through your lens in reality. You can cut out portions, but whatever portion that you take, it does not distort the overall. Next slide. Which means also, if I use that metaphor of an image, that our ontologies should not be images like paintings of Salvador Dali. That is nice to look at, but there is no mirroring with the structures that they are in reality. Next slide. So by using uh, the terminology that we developed thus far, uh, and by uh, looking at these three levels of reality, it is possible to give some kind of a classification of the different kind of uh, representational artifacts that are out there. So uh, this is taken from a paper that we published end of last year, and there we said, okay, uh, in the light of those concept of, of those representational uh, units, a taxonomy is a three-form graph-theoretic representational artifact, which notes representing universals or classes. Uh, classes are those generic things which are not universal. For instance, animals in the zoo of Buffalo. Uh, I'm not pointing to any specific animal there. I'm pointing to a kind of a collection. These kind of things, we consider that to be classes, but that are not universal. So there is no universal animal in the zoo of Buffalo. Uh, an ontology, then, is a representational artifact that has a taxonomy as proper parts, and the representational units are intended to designate some combination of universal defined classes and certain relationships between them. Now, the important word is here, intended, because quite often uh, these things do, don't do it. So, quite often we see in uh, artifacts which are called ontologies, uh, terms appearing that refer to nothing at all. In the medical world, typical examples are absence of breast or prevented abortion. Uh, as is clear, a prevented abortion can't be an abortion because there wasn't any uh, abortion. What we are involved in is realism-based ontology. So that is an ontology which is built in such a way that the terms are intended to refer exclusively to universals, and they correspond to that part of the content of a scientific theory that is captured by its constituent general terms and their interrelation. 
So realism-based ontology, in our view, is the formal way of representing scientific theories. Uh, Next thing is the term. Yeah, uh, we have about one minute. Yeah, yeah, I'm almost done. Okay. Uh, terminology is a representational artifact which consists of representational units, which are the general terms of some natural language used to refer to entities in the domain. And then at the last end, we have an inventory, and an inventory deals exclusively with particulars, so not with universals at all. Next slide. So there are some characteristics. So each unit is assumed to be veridical, so to conform to some portion of reality, uh, as conceived of the best current scientific understanding. Next slide. Several units may correspond to the same portion of reality by presenting different, though still veridical views or perspectives. Next slide. Next slide, please. Well, this to be represented by the units in the representation depends on the purposes which the representation is designed to serve. And then last slide. If we then look at characteristics of an optimal ontology, again, according to our view, then it would be such that each representational unit would designate one single portion of reality. That portion of reality is deemed to be relevant to the purposes of the ontology. The authors of the ontology intended to use this unit to designate that portion of reality, and there would be no portions of realities which are objectively relevant to these purposes that are not referred to in the ontology. Thank you. That was it. Thank you, Werner. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Peter Yim. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to uh, uh, give everybody a, a short rundown on what Ontolog is. I know most of you uh, are already Ontolog members, but I can see uh, quite a few new faces also. Uh, so, And then uh, I will sort of take a slightly different perspective, I mean, from, from I guess, a, a, on what we are looking at in Ontology Summit 2007. Uh, maybe not, not a different perspective, uh, but rather a larger goal that we're trying to achieve, the challenges and opportunities that we are facing, and then a little bit of reflection at the end. Uh, very quick, I mean, this is a, a dense slide. Uh, I'm not going to go through it, but for those who are not already part of uh, Ontolog, you're most welcome to join us. The uh, important link to remember is somewhere down at the bot bottom of the slide. <coughs> and, and essentially, uh, Ontolog is uh, a, a community of practice. Uh, it's a conversation at the end of the day at, at the bar. Uh, I have in this picture captured a couple of my idols, uh, Doug Engelbart and John McCarthy. And I think, I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do. I mean, use an augmented uh, way to get John McCarthy's work into the real world, in, in, into the mainstream, uh, through casual conversations, but very constructive ones. 
and uh, we try to build a fishnet organization whereby it's just a pool of resources. And if we do have a project like this one, then the right people come together, form a temporary hierarchy, execute it, and then the uh, resources go back into this pool of network until the next opportunity arises. And that's what we try to do with this uh, organization. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, we've been around for five years now. Actually, uh, April is uh, April 2nd could mark sort of the day we started. Now we are slightly over five years. And if we look at last month, uh, we had 91,000 visits and 407,000 hits on the Ontolog website. Uh, and uh, this slide is a bit dark, but we have access from uh, people all over the world, uh, literally. And one key differentiation is uh, our activities are community-driven. We are neutral, we are open, and we are not answerable to any authority uh, or in institutional structure except our charter and our IPR policy, and implicitly our own professional integrity. So, I mean, that's the kind of platform we're working on, and this was last year. A uh, bunch of people came together and tried to get the custodians of upper ontologies uh, into the same, uh, uh, sitting around the same table. Now, this year, we tried to sort of address or embrace a broader audience, uh, not just the upper ontologists, but, I mean, the taxonomists, the folksonomists, and everyone who profess in the research or implementation of uh, uh, semantic structures of sorts. Uh, what we try to do is to convene a broader community of researchers and, uh, and practitioners provide the platform for the dialogue, uh, use a community process, be able to deliver a framework, a communique, and to reach an ulterior motive. And I hope that that motive is shared by everyone here, and that's to advance the science and art of ontological engineering and then help move these things into the mainstream. I mean, it's no use trying to lock ourselves into the room and debate, but rather I think we should all be here to try to move this very good stuff into the mainstream. Uh, I quote a, a friend of mine, Richard Dalton from the Institute of the Future, and he says, nothing replaces anything. I mean, we're not trying to tell the old gods that, I mean, what they did was wrong or anything, because everything is laid on, and the new specifications, the new standards are just the good work of people who had built them up through the years. Uh, the challenges and opportunities, as I can see, is uh, working with very smart people is difficult, and, and we have uh, an abundance of them here. Uh, time and timing is critical, and we don't have time, but the timing is critical. Uh, one major challenge is the rest of the world don't know who we are talking about and much less care about what we are doing. Uh, we can see that from some of the survey responses. Uh, we want to be precise, but we want to be holistic. I mean, we, we have uh, reductionists, we have realists, we have social constructionists, and, 
and culturally, we are, we are actually not very good at at doing all these things at the same time. I, I was brought up in a Jesuit school, and in our sort of uh, school batch says, in hoc signo vince, I mean, by this sign you shall conquer. Uh, whereas, I mean, in, in my sort of ethnic upbringing with a Taoist-type uh, philosophy, I mean, we look at sort of everything has a good side and a bad side, and you live with them. Uh, and, and I think it's very important that uh, we uh, we be able to accept that. I mean, there's always two sides to the coin. And the opportunities are clear for the scientists. I mean, there are all these visions that I think come, will be coming of ages, Deborah has uh, told us. For the engineers, we are actually going to be able to build the next generation machines and uh, to offload some human tasks. Uh, for the marketeers, there's a multi, multi-billion dollar market waiting for us. So uh, how are we going to capture this? Maybe it just depends on our attitude towards collaborating to bring ontology into the mainstream. And so let's live with some of those dualities. I mean, the cathedral versus the bazaar, uh, the reductionist versus the holist, and uh, we are not bound to choose one or the other. And, and I think a lot of the ancient philosophers have already got it figured out. I don't know why it took us another 3,000 years to come here. So I, I will maybe end this by sort of making another interpretation of the first two lines of, of Tao Te Ching. And it says, the Tao that can be articulated is not the eternal Tao. And the name that can be named is not the eternal name. But in the beginning, there were no name. But through naming, all things were born. So... With that, uh, I cite a few references, and that's it. Okay, thank you, Peter. Uh, do we have uh, uh, Paolo uh, Di Maio on present or on the phone? Maybe, maybe oh, you're on mute. Yeah, if you're on mute, press a star three and s- say something so that we can hear you. Paula DeMeo, are you online? Well, well uh, what I suggest is that we uh, move on, and Come. if uh, yeah. Paula comes back, uh, eventually uh, we'll, we'll fit the uh, talk in. So, uh, Tom, did you want to talk now? Tom Gruber will uh, uh, give his uh, uh, position paper now. Taking a bit of flack over the last few uh, uh, days on, on some email traffic, which is a, a great way to interact virtually. I thought since we're really physically here, it'd be a lot more fun to actually do it in person. Um, I've got a problem. I'm ready. All right. And... Uh, so you, here's, here's some props for you. Tomatoes. For those on the phone, uh, Tom has a raincoat on and he's uh, distributing tomatoes. <laughs> 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 
there you go. Absolutely. So this is really a uh, really short period of time. We actually think we can get interactive on this pretty quickly. Um, the point, the reason I'm talking is about that framework. I'm going to walk us through distinctions that were in this document that creates all that heat. And, um, the, and, we're, and the model you might make of is it's kind of like a walk down a path. And there are branching points in the path. And really, the, the real point isn't to say there's only one path. The really point is to say, what is the space? What's the road network? So let's take a look. First slide, first line. So these are, this is just this part of that talk. I mean, Michael had the dimensions of that paper, and this is about the distinctions part of the paper. So the first distinction, which I thought was going to be so non-controversial that it wasn't even worth saying, which is, are we here to, uh, as it were, bring ourselves into the mainstream of people like the web and the world, computer science and the web and that kind of thing, or are we here thinking of ourselves as the special case of philosophy? And I said, you know, that's a pretty important distinction. It does kind of carve the world in two pieces. So in that paper, which had a manifesto tone, but not by accident. We wanted to generate some heat. It kind of said, let's, let's go after for, for now, since philosophy has been done for a while, let's go after this new sense of ontology, which we've been, all been doing for a lot of our careers. Okay, next line. Okay, so the next thing is, this is also an important one, and this is one that we get a lot of problems with. Um, you ready with the tomatoes? This is what the word conceptualization is all about. By the way, for some of you who don't know, I, the reason I got uh, pulled into this thing is just 15 years ago I wrote this paper that tried to describe what all these distinctions are and why it is that we're using ontology in a new sense from philosophy. And it gets quoted a lot, and that's why I'm saying this. But this is basically the most important thing was that the things we're building are actually tangible. They're things you can pick up and share and put on flash drives and put on the web and so on. They're not the things we think about because you really can't share the things you think about in the same way. You can give classes and have internships and, you know, guilds and so on, but really we want something you can objectively share. And that's that distinction, at least I do. And that set of ideas business, which was basically from, taken from the literature, taken from Nielsen and, and uh, the AI literature, was just an attempt to say, it was a long list of words, ideas, abstractions, views, whatever. In other words, it didn't really matter what it is. It's the idea side of the fence. The third distinction is the one that I get the most fun from arguments with. In fact, I had this argument with Barry Smith over wine a long, long time ago in Italy somewhere. Um, is this thing a specification or is it like the answer? In other words, is it, is it the representation? You know, is it, the, is it the domain theory? Is it the representation? Is it just a bunch of knowledge or is it, is it, stepped, is it somehow stepped away from that? And the reason for this specification thing, I'm going to come back to a bit more. But there is a distinction. Whether, whatever side you go on on this one, the in, is, in computer science, there's computer programs and people who write languages for that. And there's people who do formal semantic analysis and optimization on computer programs. And the former people write the ground instances. And the latter people are writing, working on the models, the specs. Okay? They're the ones who do the fancy logical reasoning and so on, like the kind of stuff we do with ontologies. So specs, specifications in the world of computer science have a very well understood meaning. And part of the motives for me getting here is I want to be a part of the mainstream. And the mainstream of the world, including the World Wide Web, thinks, you know, there are these things. And then there's these things that are specs of those things. Okay. The next level of distinction. So we're on the sort of giant Christmas tree now. I don't know where, which branch you're dangling on right now. 
Um, if it's a spec, what form or medium does it take? So this is where it's actually, uh, it's not, there's not an answer, but in the original paper I wrote, I said, you know, you could, you could do it any way you want. You could like a videotape, a tap dance, whatever, okay? It just happens that formal representations have some nice properties. And it's also true that we never use exclusively formal representations because we never communicate effectively because you always have it mixed with a bunch of human readable stuff, maybe even diagrams and photographs and so on in there to help us understand what we're trying to do. But the medium here in practice as a engineering discipline, the AI people got in the, ha got in the habit of using, using an ontology to specify a vocabulary, a primitive sort of like a set of Legos you know, toy blocks that you could then use to construct the thing, the, the toy tower. And they made that distinction. Now, formally, a stack of Legos is just a bunch of plastic, and a, the, the design of the block is just a bunch. The, the box in the, the unbuilt building pile of rubble is also just a bunch of plastic. But there's an important distinction that one is an enabler for the other. And that's what this notion of representation of vocabulary is, is that... There's a notion that a bunch of work goes up front to build this little bit of enabling thing, and then a bunch of other instances or applications of it can be done. This is exactly the same sense of specification when we talk about database schema, where someone, some, someone thinks through real hard, what's the database schema and a data model, and then a whole bunch of instances are filled out. Right? Okay. Now, that's the big tree. And there's another one in there, too, distinctions. Um, this is the one that probably is less... Uh, controversial, but it's the one, if we're trying to be part of the mainstream, this is the one big difference that we have to be able to explain to the outside world. Because, you know, it's, it's funny, um, Ed Feigenbaum talks about why did the relational database world totally win and AI totally lose in terms of the money and commercialization. They came up with a really clear, guy, guy named Cobb wrote this really clear thing that says, here's the formalism and Here's the practical you know, consequences of the algebras and so on, which led to this whole industry of optimization, which all these properties people built, you know, databases that work, okay? And they think, as far as most of the world goes, that's all the ontology they'll ever need is a data model, okay? But we claim there's something else. And so what is it is this distinction between a format-specific, a language-specific way of doing it. So if someone says it's a relational database schema, they mean exactly one thing. It can only say certain things. Tables, right? However, in ontology, we're saying you can say more things, and the kind of constraints we can say are more rich, and we're, so we're sort of arguing for a semantic level. And we're, it's really important that we're not talking about a format. So if we say it has to be an owl or whatever, we've just lost the game. All right. So is it a logic or not? Again, I say it doesn't have to be because in really in practice, I mean, when I was at Stanford, I tried to go to both ends, like hard, you know, hard left in the sort of semi-structural, which nowadays is folks on me and stuff like that, sort of, you know, really like user-centered and all that kind of communistic kind of stuff. And on the hard right, McCarthy kind of stuff, which was, you know, axiomizations of engineering mathematics and, you know, really out there. And even when I was on the hard right, I couldn't ground it in just pure abstraction. It had to go actually, believe it or not, to the philosophy literature and about measurement theory in order to figure out how to actually, and so a bunch of words are the core conceptual grounding of that thing and then all these formulas and like axioms, right? So this formalism is not the answer. It's not a sufficient or necessary condition, but it sure is a useful tool, 
All right, next line. Okay. And then the final one is this. There's a paragraph in there. Yeah. What, how are we doing? Just one minute? Okay, that's cool. Uh, we can have this argument later about logical theory. That's actually a, a, a tangent we threw in there because it's a good one to argue about. Next page. Last slide. Okay, here's the S word. Okay. Just go ahead and give us the punchlines all the way through. The only specification. Why is it? The whole argument with the specification is that if we think, if, whether or not we believe philosophers are smarter than computer scientists or whatever, that's, that whole business about the superiority of arrogance, who's, who can be more arrogant or whatever, it's just kind of really a point, pointless argument. But what's important thing here is that if we want to be relevant, we can, in fact, say to someone, we have a technology, it's objective, you can see whether the two of them are equal or not, and you can evaluate them as part of a design discipline. And that's what my, I argue we should be trying to do when we do this field. Okay, next, last page. So finally, the picture here is we have two choices. We have... We can all paint our own colors on the wall, or we can do collaborative art. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Tim. Well, I think we're all preparing our tomatoes now, right? <laughs> but next to Mike. Um, let's say, uh, is... Uh, Paula on the phone yet? So, I don't know whether you've been looking at email, but he's on. She, oh. Sorry, she's on. She's on. Uh, but she needs help. No, so I, I don't said, have access to email here. So. Okay, so she says nobody's on the chat. She asked for somebody to log into the Summit chat. Uh, she says her microphone is unmuted, and she's on Skype. But she also says she's on the dial-up line. So she says she's on three channels. Hmm. <laughs> Is there anyone on the telephone? Maybe we dropped. Is anyone on the phone at all? Werner is here. Okay. Can we ask you to help monitor the, uh, the, the telephone line and if it drops, uh, could you maybe give me a call? Oh, yeah, sure. But uh, up till now, everything went fine. I don't have any problem. Okay. All right. I, I, have, uh, I have Paula on the chat now. Uh, but, but she... Okay. We can't hear her, and she can she hear us? In the email, she said she could hear us. Ah. The only details, we can't hear her. Right. Well, the, the difficulty is in Skype, she won't be able to unmute. She won't be able to do a star three in Skype. Yeah, but she says she's on the dial-up, too. Right. Skype is the method to get to dial-up. Oh. Is she, yeah. Is she using a non-voiceover internet? Uh, are you calling in from the, the landline? Well, it could be a landline, but she's going to answer us by chat, presumably. Has she responded, Peter? Uh, are you calling into the 605 number on the landline in Italy? Are you in Italy? 
presumably. So what could we do? Well, what we could do is take a break now and then uh, try to fix the problem. Or, or, or could we, would you put maybe Deborah on first and then uh, I will okay. fix the problem during the break? Okay. Uh, Deborah, would you mind uh, going now then? Uh, it's uh, 9.55, so about 5 after 10. Okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, an ontology <laughs> spectrum. Ah, okay. Um, that is the result of multiple people's work and also is a spectrum that I've used over a lot of years. You want to go to the next slide? So just for a little bit of background, in 1999 at a AAAI uh, conference, a number of us got together for a panel on ontologies. Are they just expert systems all over again? And prior to that panel, uh, we got together and talked for a long time about what we were willing to call an ontology. Um, and what we agreed upon was that there was a spectrum. There were a lot of things that were out there being called ontologies, and at least some number of us agreed that we were doing our community a disservice if we weren't acknowledging that a lot of people call these things ontologies, whether we wanted to call them ontologies or not. So we came up with a spectrum, um, and there were pieces that everybody in the room could agree on. There were pieces that we knew that a lot of people called ontologies, and some purists didn't want to agree with that. But we wanted to portray this as a spectrum. And at that particular time, I was really heavily entrenched for a big project. I was crawling the web for things that people were calling ontologies, looking very carefully at it. So there was actually a fair amount of empirical evidence that went in crawling, Yahoo, uh, Topica, Lycos, Amazon, as well as things that the formalists in the group were building. Um, also, for a lot of details on this ontology, I wrote up, or the spectrum, I wrote up a paper taking every single point on the spectrum, saying how you might consider using that and how I actually had seen it being used. Next slide. So this spectrum, um, so it's been around since 99. I just talked to Michael in the break room. He says he teaches a class off of it. I've given hundreds if not thousands of lectures off of it, um, and I've done that to very broad audiences. So it kind of goes from the left side of the less expressive uh, spectrum to the more expressive uh, side, and that red line is interesting. Basically, everything to the right of the red line, uh, everybody who discussed this would agree was willing to be called an ontology, and everything to the right of the red line means that you can actually start to make formal inferences based on the definitions. So on the left, we've got a catalog or ID, basically just a controlled vocabulary. Um, and that's useful because if you get people just talking about terms from a controlled vocabulary, at least they're not using five different terms for the same uh, word. Moving to the right, oh, and actually there's no, I don't have a pointer, I guess, huh? Okay, so there, there's no difference between um, above and below the line. It was just uh, convenience for naming. So if we move to the right, um, the next point is, ah, okay, that's a little bit better. Um, terms and glossaries. Oh, yeah, pointers are good. 
Ah, okay. Uh, so moving to the right on the spectrum, we get terms with uh, glossary. So some kind of definition, usually in a natural language, may not be machine operational, but at least can give humans understanding of those terms. So now we've got the control vocabulary plus some definition that can be meaningful in explanations. Moving to the next point on the spectrum, this one, when I've given talks to library audiences, I've started to get much more precise here. So... Um, a number of computer scientists wanted this on the left-hand side of this line. When I gave this talk in front of uh, library audiences, they all said there's a very strong definition of what it means to be narrower um, or more general than. And so um, librarians, when they use uh, thesaurus in a formal sense, they would claim that it's to the right of the line in that you can make formal inferences based on being narrower or um, more general in some things that we might call sloppier thesaurus or some naturally occurring thesaurus that might not be done by trained uh, librarians, sometimes uh, there's a general notion of being narrower or more general. There's a point here for informal ISA, and um, I stand behind that point really strongly because if you look out there at naturally occurring classifications such as Yahoo, they have classes like travel and then a subclass of travel called travel accessory. Uh, where if you're an instance of travel accessory, I wouldn't claim you're an instance of travel, but they're, they look like they're subclass related in this point. Um, but if you look at the structure that they generated overall, 90% or more um, is truly a subclass relationship. So we, we classify them as an informal is a relationship uh, because you can't strictly enforce, um, uh, you can't put deductive mechanisms on that because you don't know when you're formal or, or informal. Moving across this line, and now if you're an instance of the subclass, you're always an instance of the superclass. Uh, we've distinguished between class relationships and instance relationships since many times you have just a schema of um, class terms instead of including ground instances like Deborah the person. Um, but if you add in the instance information, there's a point for that. Moving further to the right, uh, there's a lot of frame-based systems out there, so the properties are included um, along with potentially putting value restrictions on. So if you're an instance of a child, you have to be an instance of a person if the value restriction or an instance of a human if the value restriction is human. And then moving further to the right, you see many languages like OWL that have selected particular logical constraints that they generate primitives for, like disjointness or inverse. Um, and moving to the far right, we have general logical constraints, so any kind of logical constraint that you want to put on there. I don't want to make value judgments on whether ontologies are to the far left or, or whether artifacts are to the far left or to the far right of the spectrum because what I found actually as I work with the spectrum, all points along this can add a lot of value uh, to applications and making them, quote, smarter. Next slide. I'm not going to go through uh, each of these uses, but I've actually got two slides of uses of ontologies. The, the left-hand side of the spectrum, um, I personally have done applications in all points on here from things of using controlled vocabularies uh, to support search engines um, or to support site organization. And then going to the next slide. 
Um, and if you move to the further right-hand side of the spectrum, you can do things like consistency checking um, and do full configuration, so doing a fair amount of deduction based on the meanings of those terms. And going to the next slide. So just for the take-home message here, um, one, relatively simple ontologies can provide significant value to many different kinds of applications. So let's be inclusive and allow these things that add value to the applications to be part of what we're talking about. To uh, pick up on Michael's point, I similarly want to, the reason I'm into ontologies to, is to make my applications smarter and to make them reusable. So if I can have these artifacts that make them smarter and reusable, then I'm thrilled. Um, and this view of ontologies as a spectrum, it's been, for me and for many other people who use this spectrum, it's been a very useful way of introducing ontologies. And it's not the only spectrum around. Leo's got a paper that has um, maybe a more sophisticated, maybe more detailed spectrum as well. But many of us have found tremendous value in the notion of ontologies as a spectrum. Um, and it's a great pedagogical tool. And we might choose to make many dimensions to the spectrum. In fact, the framework has many different dimensions. This one is actually one that I find to be the most useful for categorizing my spectrum. Oh, one minute left. Okay. Actually, this is the last slide. So I'll take one minute of questions if anybody wants one. Um, thank you for the presentation. I have a question. Um, what happened to the other nine relationships that are part of a thesaurus? I've always wondered what happened to um, the 50% um, of the standards definitions um, in this spectrum. And I have to apologize to Leo because I've been hitting Leo for about a year uh, about the fact that this was missing, and I don't think it was his fault. So my apologies, Leo. But what happened to all of those other relationships that are in, inherent in a thesaurus? My, my major problem with this spectrum, it causes me a lot of grief because, frankly, because um, I have people coming back to me saying thesaurus will never work, et cetera. It's a simple tool. And, in fact, it's about as close as you can get to a semantic network if you're talking about the types of relationships. We seem to limit our discussion of thesauri to um, the um, inheritance and hierarchical structures, and that is about 25% of what's in most thesauri. So I, I just, my question is, what happened to that, and why didn't that get into this discussion that's been going on for several years? So I think, actually, the, the thesaurus notion that we have up here is what, well, okay, so it might be wrong in, uh, according to international standards, national standards, it's wrong. Okay, so maybe we should discuss offline, but this one. No, this is something we have to discuss, I think, as, as a, in, a, in the domain, not right now, but this is a discussion that has to take place because until we can get this definition right, we will not make any progress and we will not bring in the other communities. Okay, can I make a comment here? Uh, in, in one of the ISO standards, there is, for example, a differentiation of narrower than into narrower than subclass, narrower than instance, narrower than part. And those, if they were used, would indeed have somewhat more semantics than just narrower than. I have yet to see a thesaurus that actually uses that differentiation. 
Not I, one. I can show you the one that's called the World Bank Thesaurus. Right. Your, yours, I'm sure, is very good. Me. But that's not what I'm talking about. But that's not typical. But that's yeah. not I, I, but we have just... to pause here, folks. Uh, uh, we're going to continue this discussion, obviously, uh, and we'll, we'll have time to continue it. Uh, we need to take a break right now till 10.15. looks like an eight-minute break. Uh, and uh, and then hopefully uh, uh, Paula uh, will be on to present immediately following the break. Thank you. Well, for anyone who speaks, could you identify yourself first for the sake of everybody else? Posterity. 